0: basically a studio that comes out of your pocket. Yeah,
1: right. I'm so I am I'm, I'm so impressed that this actually works. <laughs> yeah. I was like worried, you know, I have to like cool. carry all this equipment and all these yeah, things, you know, but it's like simple. And the quality is pretty good, yeah, you pretty know. Sure, As audio pretty it pretty works. Good. Welcome to Pensep series. David Roberts is regarded as one of the world's top experts on disruptive innovation and exponentially advancing technology. His passion is to help transform the lives of a billion suffering people in the world through disruptive innovation. David served as vice president of Singularity University and two-time director and alum of the Global Solutions Program. He is an award-winning CEO and serial entrepreneur and has started ventures back with over $100 million of investment. He holds also an MBA from Harvard Business School. He is a chairman at HaloDrop, a revolutionary global drones service company, and chairman at 1QBit, the world's first software company for quantum computers. His fascination with technology began in fourth grade, after building a hovering electric drone to carry his younger sister to the bus stop, powered by what was formerly his mother's vacuum cleaner, and fortunately limited by the length of an electric power cord. In this episode, we talk about his journey, how to think about thinking, and the many lessons he learned throughout his life. Where, where did you grow up?
0: Interesting question. Uh, let's say I was born in London, and then I moved uh, to the U.S. when I was little. And I uh, grew up just outside of New York City, in New Jersey for a while, and then in Ohio.
1: And you still carry the British the British influence? No, I got
0: rid of that in uh, seventh grade when I moved to Ohio.
1: <laughs> and w- what was
0: it like growing up where you, where you grew up? It was great. I, you know, New Jersey has great schools. So I had that benefit. I think I got a great education there. And Ohio is just a great place, I think, for families to live and grow up.
1: Yeah. Um, And so then you went to school and and how did you think about your future um, when you finished high school?
0: Yeah. I mean, I knew I was very interested in science and technology. Um, And probably at that time too, I was so interested in science and technology that I had a real absence of interest for English literature um, and so I was really interested in going to MIT simply because I knew I didn't have to take English there, which is a really odd and almost horrible thing when you look back on your life, <laughs> what was important to you and why you've made certain decisions. Um, but I felt like MIT, I'd learned a lot about technology. And, and it's a great school for that, but I have to admit I probably got more of it than I expected.
1: And w- w- what was your, like, experience there?
0: I think, uh, I think for me, I realized that I could actually get too much of something that I wanted. So by the time I, I graduated, I wasn't actually interested in being an engineer, which is what I, what I went there for. Um, and they, they have a very interesting and different way of thinking about education, uh, oh, sorry. and very different at least than you know, the one I have. At that time, the idea was, you know, you make things really hard, and that, you know, by things being really difficult, you would be inspired, and you'd get this idea that things are hard. And so, you know, you take a test, and at least in the electrical and computer engineering department, you know, the average on a test might, you know, I'd get, i take a test and I'd get like 33 on it out of 100. And I even remember very vividly my first one and getting that score and just thinking, oh my gosh, I just completely like failed this test. But the average in the class was like 27 or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you always sort of feel like you're kind of dumb. <laughs> but then you kind of know you're still doing okay. I think it's an interesting way. Uh, and I think MIT as a result of that produces very interesting learners that go after very hard problems because they're just used to it. Is that. Would you
1: say that was the most important thing you learned there? Being curious for hard problems.
0: I lost a lot of my curiosity, so I'm not sure that was a good thing. Um, I do think, though, it was a great thing to learn that some things are just hard, and you just have to keep at it, and they stay hard. They really are. I mean, our brains are pretty limited. I mean, I know we think we sort of know everything in the world, but we don't even understand. We don't even understand gravity <laughs> that we're sitting. We don't even have basic theories about really like gravity. I mean we're so, we've got a three pound brain and we're slightly smarter than a gorilla and that's just like on the spectrum of intelligence where we're at. And As a result of that we get all this cool technology right but we're still pretty infantile in terms of the complexity that the universe offers. We're a long, long way from
1: understanding it. And then you finished there, what, how did you think about your career?
0: So the Air Force paid for my college. Um, I was in the reserve officer training program. So I needed to go into the Air Force afterward, which I really wanted. I was really excited and looking forward to that because I knew it would be different. And I ended up one day, I think at junior year in college, because you have to start thinking about what you're going to do in the Air Force. And they obviously had just paid for me to be an engineer. And I looked through this book about all the different jobs I could have that wouldn't be an engineer. And um, and then I came across this one that said special agent on it, and I was like, I can't believe that's actually a job. And I'm reading through this, and at the bottom of every page is a little paragraph about all the negatives of the job. And the negatives of the job were that I would not be allowed to ever wear a uniform, which was a positive to me, at the time. <laughs> uh, that you know, you'd know you have to carry a gun, you'd have to travel a lot. like. And I probably grew up watching too many James Bond movies, but this just <laughs> sounded like the most amazing job and that all the negatives were like the best things about the job. Um, so it took a little you know, convincing to convince them for me to do something that they hadn't obviously paid me to do. Uh, but they were okay with it, and, uh, and I learned a lot from it. It was a really uh, great way to serve. So.
1: Do you have a, like, a formative experience there that, stent- that stent- stood out? that shaped your yeah, personality?
0: definitely. Um, I mean, some of, two why I was drawn to it wasn't just really from watching James Bond movies. There was a lot of terrorism at that time in the world, especially in Europe. And I grew up from my parents really having a concept of fairness, you know, and that people shouldn't sort of take advantage of other people, especially through fear. Um. And going into college, I thought, gosh, there's no way I could ever do something like that. But then you sort of realize, after doing hard things for many years, that nothing is, everybody can do everything they want to do. I mean, we all kind of have the same brain. Um, And the variations, I know people don't think this, I think this, the variations of intelligence are very small. You know, we're in the category of human. And... You know, there are really bright dogs, there are dumb dogs, but it's still all dog intelligence. <laughs> it's still all in that spectrum, and we're in that spectrum. And so anything you think you can do, if somebody else is doing it, you can probably do it. So going into it, you know, I thought, wow, I'm really disadvantaged because I don't have like, the typical skills of the other candidates that get selected for that. But you know, if you have a handicap you uh, you make up for it. <laughs> and I guess my the real lesson I learned from it, though, was a different one, which is that there really are people in the world that don't have the best intent. Right? Because, I mean, the main kind of focus of special agents is to try and find and sort of capture these people that are somehow able to evade every other thing that they our governments put together to prevent people from sort of doing evil elsewhere.
1: It's, it's catching those people who use loopholes.
0: Yeah. But it's catching people that have been really good at loopholes usually for a long time and for a while. And people that really actually mean large numbers of people harm. <laughs> um, and so yeah, the government takes a lot of time to try and train those, because that's inherently a very dangerous thing. They really don't want to get caught. Um, and my, my lesson in it is so different lessons lesson at the time and lesson I learned afterward. Lesson at the time was not everyone has the best intentions of the world. <laughs>
1: um, what, what do you think that is, that is? That some
0: people don't? I believe, so I have a different view. I believe that everybody's born good. <laughs> Everybody is a mom. I've never found an evil baby ever. I've never even found... I've found kids that do evil things, but not kids that are like are inherently evil. And every kid kind of does it to sort of experiment. You know, They like poke the younger baby, and the baby cries, and they don't really have learned the empathy yet or anything, but they know that they don't like the crying noise, so they don't do it. I think there's a slippery slope, though, that happens in adulthood, where... People make an exception, uh, and the exception that they make is that just this one time I'm going to lie, or just this one time I'm going to sort of cheat this other person out of something, or I'm going to steal something. And what happens is that over time, they sort of just keep doing it, and they keep making an exception, and then sooner than not, their exception becomes their habit. And then their habit goes down this slippery slope because people are ambitious. And then with that, over a long period of time, they become something that you and I like would barely recognize as a decent person. But they have been down that slippery slope and they don't have that same recognition. Because right? they've justified everything that they've done. And they continue even to justify the things that they, that they do. That's my takeaway. But my realization afterward was a much more different one, and it was that, and I'd heard this quote, and the quote was that Thomas Edison, in the invention of the light bulb, did more for humanity than like any politician or government service person in history. And I used to like, keep thinking about that quote, and it bothered me, right, because I was in what I call direct service, of trying to help people on a personal, proportional level. And I kept thinking, like, yeah, he really did. I mean, the light bulb scaled, <laughs> and I benefited from it, and every person I knew benefited from it, and this one guy did that a long time ago. And he wasn't even the only guy who invented the light bulb. He was like the 24th person or something like that with a light bulb. right? But this idea that technology could scale and help people in a way that direct service couldn't, I think that was powerful, and it stayed with me for... A long time. Uh, and it changed my life, I think. I mean, I really can trace it back to just that idea.
1: I'd be also curious to understand how did you learn that you know, the, the world is not something that you just partake, but something that you can change and it's, it's malleable? Like you mentioned that. I would yeah. be interested to know how did you learn that?
0: Yeah, that's good too. I haven't thought about that. I'll have to think about it now. And I think about when that really happened. Um, so this is an odd thing, especially to say, I guess, in a, in a podcast. But there's this weird moment in my life where I realized that you could completely change your mindset. And it was actually going to airborne paratrooper training. So some cadets if they apply, are selected and they get picked to go to airborne for training, right? So here I am, a sophomore at MIT, and I get selected to this thing. And I've never, in my whole life, really done anything that was like very military. And you know, it's at Fort Benning, Georgia, and it's three weeks long, and they start, I think, with, I can't remember what the real numbers are, but I think it was they start with like 600 and then they end with like 200 or something. But it's this thinning out process, and it's not a comfortable process of thinning out, right? And you, It's not that you're sort of doing push-ups all day in 90-degree weather and things like that. It's that, you know, at that time, they have a lot of things that they did that were really uncomfortable, you know. And so as you go through this, though they're also changing the way you think. And so when they drop you for push-ups, at the end of your you know, 20 push-ups, you have to ask for permission to do more, which isn't what you think you should be doing at the end, right, because you've just sort of been punished. And this happens over a period of time, but at the end of the three weeks, I really believe like airborne paratroopers think differently. Their mindset was changed into something said that hard things can be overcome and the difficult circumstances are only difficult for as long as you let them be so that I think was a pivotal moment in my own thinking I think the time where I started thinking that you could change the world was um, much later after that I think that occurred uh, when I started getting in a large engineering project, so I got myself involved in things like drones and satellites, but from the beginning, from the conception. So here you'd work on this thing that was going to be several years, but in the end of the several years, suddenly you'd built something that was really dramatic and changing the world, and, and then I think it just got ingrained like, wow all this great stuff that I see in the world, like somebody did that. Somebody just, not somebody exceptional, somebody like just you and me. And in my mind, where I'd always thought, oh, it was always brilliant people doing all these things, I think I've realized now that really ordinary people do incredible stuff. And in fact, the norm now is that really normal people do incredible stuff. I'll give a few examples of ones I'm involved in. So there's really two quantum computing companies that matter, I think, in the world right now. There's one called D-Wave, and they build these things. Incredible machines, 100 million times faster, for the thing that they do, the kind of problem they solve, 100 million times faster than a normal computer. And there's another one called Qubit that actually writes the software and solves the problems. The guy who started Qubit is a friend of mine. And he knew absolutely nothing about quantum computing two or three years before he got into this. So he goes from a state like you and I were in, where we just like know very little about quantum computing, to having the best quantum computing software company in the world. Like, by far. Three other guys that I went to Singularity University with, I worked on a project with them, and we were interested in space. We were exploring a bunch of things in space. And then they wanted to build this 3D printer in space. And I wasn't really that interested in that, because the market for that, was one, because there's a space station, so you could build a 3D printer for one space station. But they went ahead and, knowing really nothing, before they got to Singular University, none of them had even heard of a 3D printer. And then three or four years later, they had put a zero-gravity 3D printer on the space station and 3D printed manufactured the first object that humankind manufactures in space. Three guys that knew nothing, they didn't even know what a 3D printer was, just three or four years later, are now responsible for the first thing that humankind manufactures in space. Like, think like, ten thousand years from now, we will look back and think like, oh, these three guys built the first thing in space. It's so incredible, and you know I could go on and on, but there are dozens of stories. And what I'm realizing is. The people who do these things have an interest, a passion, a desire. Uh, and they might not have the knowledge, but because technologies are exponential and because of disruption, it allows things to happen very, very quickly. And that pretty much anybody can pursue one of these things with very little knowledge and recruit the people that they need and make incredible things happen that like, change the world.
1: And how did you find your unique expression within those possibilities, basically, that opened up?
0: Yeah. Um, you mean kind of what am I interested in now? Is
1: that... Well, like throughout your life, um, once you realize that okay, um, I know where I'm coming from and I know what I'm good at, yeah. and I have all these things that are unique to myself, and uh, I get to understand myself better. Yeah. And then you see like okay, the world is not just something I'm participating in, but something I can change as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then w- where did you find the medium to express? yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a growing path and the growing path also I think involves a lot, uh, how to word this, who you surround yourself with I think actually has an enormous impact on what you become (laughs) and what you believe you can become. In fact I think it's so influential that if people were interested in changing the world I believe that the single most important thing that they could do would be to start to surround themselves with people that either believe they can change the world or have changed the world. Like, until you do that, it just doesn't feel real. I'll, I'll do an example. Winning a gold medal doesn't feel very real to me, because I actually don't know a lot of people that have won gold medals. but. I bet you, if you and I and all of our friends were all like gold medal winners, I would just be like, well, of course people win gold medals. Yeah. <laughs> and ordinary people win gold medals, and people maybe that didn't seem like they were great athletes win gold medals. And, you know, we would just have that belief. So choosing a set of people around you, I think, um, you know, ends up being pivotal. And you can do that really easily. You know, You can decide where you want to go to school or what kinds of projects you want to get involved in. Or, I mean, that's a that's a very easy decision to make. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably the most... I mean, I'll just leave it simple, but that's probably the most important.
1: And what you're referring to is also a, a mindset. And, you know, oftentimes, it's sort of like our lives are governed sort of the, the tale of two states. Yeah. And the mindset, you know, that's induced... Where, where, where you are calm, where you you know people meditate and they do yeah. yoga and exercise and similar things to like be one with themselves and and sort of that is one mindset and then the other mindset is you know being distracted, being busy, not doing things that are you yeah. and and being anxious and all these other things. Yeah. And so, how did you shift yourself whenever you were in, in, in you know in that ne- negative mindset or yeah. state of mind? How did you like shift um, sort of to that other mindset? Yeah. Because once you're like prison, a prisoner of that other mindset, yeah. nothing is possible. Absolutely, And it's like torturing yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's greater than that, and you've really nailed on. And you know, whether you call it mindset or philosophy, like the philosophy, how you think about thinking <laughs> yeah. matters. Um, we are who we are, I think primarily because of three things. We have genetics that came to us from our grandparents. And you can see that play out. Like my sister has two sons and a daughter. But the two sons, they both came from the same two parents and they grew up in the same environment and they're only like a year apart. But they're unbelievably different, pretty much since they were born. Like that's the genetics, right? And then there's the upbringing, which is your environment and You have some control over that later on in life, maybe a little bit, but you you usually don't get to pick your parents and everything else, but that has some. But then there's this third thing. And the third thing is um, this free will that allows you to choose your own path, to become very self-aware about what you're really like and what world you're really in. And, like, one of the first great things I think people do is they leave the town that they grew up in, which is not what most people do. But at some point, there's just some people that are like, well, I don't have to stay in this little small town that I happen to be in, or whatever that situation is. I can move, and so if I want to be an actor, I can move to L.A., or if I want to be an entrepreneur, I can move to Silicon Valley, or if I want, you know, you can pick and do that. And so suddenly you ha- realize you've become a- the captain of your own ship. And at that point, it's just a matter of time till everything starts to change.
1: Thank you for listening and see you next time.